Hey, doing everybody? You guys are listening to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. This is Mike Del Judas. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor, and I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history, and what his music has meant to us. This is called "Say Goodbye to Hollywood." What's up, guys? This is Michael and Jack. We are in SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California, waiting for Billy to take the stage. Yeah, it's a good time so far. Stephen Nicks put on a great show. We should try to sneak down to the bottom, see if we don't get kicked out of here first, but uh, very excited. This place is huge. Yeah, so stick around. We got a lot more to come on this week's episode. We're going to dig into the entire night and the uh, Billy Joel set that, as of this moment, is uh, up next. Stay tuned. So we are once again breaking the laws of time and physics. We are recording just this intro about two episodes in advance. We usually do it slightly more linearly, but this time we're doing it because the bulk of this episode is going to be recorded a scant few days before you hear it. And that's because we're going to see the kickoff concert of the Billy Joel Stevie Nicks tour at the SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles, California. And that is uh, Saturday, and this episode is going to come out on Tuesday. So we're going to record our hot takes pretty much right after the concert. And then we're just going to slap all of that together and get this out to you so you can all hear about it fresh, just as the reviews are rolling out before we get too much further into the tour. I'm excited. I think this will be a nice uh, document from the from the very start of Billy's first partnership tour. What would you call it? Co-Bill? Co-headlining yeah, tour? Yeah, co- co-headlining. Yeah. yeah. Since, uh, since the last one with Elton in what, t- 2009, 2010? It's been a decade plus at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we're expecting this to be a different dynamic than Billy and Elton. I think that was a different time. I think Billy and Elton were obviously more of a logical match in that they both play piano. And so it lent itself well to coming out, playing each other's songs and things like that. I'm absolutely excited about it. I like Fleetwood Mac and Stevie has some fantastic solo stuff. I, I did see Fleetwood Mac once, actually one of the last tours that they did, the one after uh, Lindsey Buckingham parted ways when they had a... Uh, Mike Campbell uh, on guitar and Neil Finn. So that was actually a fun lineup to see. Um, So that was my only Stevie Nicks live experience to date. So to see this kind of setting, I'm excited about it. I have no idea what to expect from either of them. I would hope that Billy is going to do something a little bit different. I know, you know, I'm not hoping for a uh, deep cuts kind of set list, but uh, maybe just kind of shake up the sequencing just a little bit for this kind of show. Yeah. I also saw, I saw Fleetwood Mac, I think, 2002, 2003. And that was a pretty good show. Um, it seems like he tries out a couple songs at the beginning of a tour sometimes. So we maybe we're in for a treat or two. Yeah, I think this is our best shot because it is night one of this partnership. Jack and I first met in person at the Sag Harbor screening last summer, 2022. And we uh, connected again in the uh, Seattle-Tacoma Olympia area last Thanksgiving. For years now, we had been talking about wanting to do a Billy show together. It's like, well, yeah, we got to at least see Billy once Yeah, at the same time together. And once this Stevie Nicks thing happened, uh, you know, we're like, well, let's find a neutral site at yeah. the Super Bowl and see, uh, <laughs> you know, if we can uh, both get to the same city. We both landed on LA and it just happened to barely work out for both of us. The only chance you and I had to hang out for Sag Harbor was the drive to Sag Harbor and back. So we're going to have a, a, 
a day in LA together, probably hit, hit Amoeba, do some record store shopping and see some other sites. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, uh, yeah, have a fun time at the show. This is going to be a lot of fun. We bought some uh, nosebleed seats. And then after we kind of booked everything, I realized, oh, I've got a concert in Portland the day after the Billy Joel show in LA. <laughs> so I fly back home out of out of LA at 6 a.m., land in Portland at like 10.30 in the morning, hanging out with Jenny in Portland for the day, and then we're going to go see John Mellencamp in Portland uh, Saturday night. And then it's daylight savings, so we lose an hour Saturday night. Oh, geez. <laughs> you know, that's going to really I, screw with me. I'm like, I'm going to be useless on Sunday. You know, I may be nuts, but I generally tend to stay in the same 50-mile radius. You, my friend, have no trouble. You are like the 23rd century man. You're just like, well, I'll just be in... <laughs> I'll just be on this side of the continent and then on this side of the continent and 12 hours later. And then eh, let's just stop right in the middle of the continent. Like, you know, before the sun goes down, it's not easy. Like <laughs> I still don't know how the whole thing with Sag Harbor worked because at all. Cause when I left, I left Philly Eastern time zone, had a layover in Chicago central yeah. time, then back to Detroit, which is Eastern time. Right. Then I drove for four hours. Once I landed in Detroit every year, that gets harder to do. Let's yeah. just put it that way. <laughs> We're still pulling it off, so I'm mean, I'm actually excited to see what the rest of this episode is going to sound like once once it's done. So with that in mind, though, before we get to that, we are gonna we are gonna dip into the old mailbag, which is something we haven't done in a while. And on top of emails, we actually have some uh, Facebook comments from some recent episodes that were uh, some great feedback and some stories that we thought would be fun to share as well too. So we've got a little of both this time around. The email has been drying up, and and I blame ourselves because we have not been reading them. You know. But, you know, we do read everything you guys send and, and we're excited to finally take a moment and get some of these uh, read on the podcast again. So diving right in, Gary Rubenstein from Manhattan. He writes, hi, Mike and Jack. Found your podcast a few months ago and have been savoring them in order. I'm up to number 28 and I'm now listening to one almost every other day. Yours is the only podcast I listen to nowadays. I really like the vibe and all the great insight and interesting facts about Billy Joel. I grew up in Merrick, Long Island. I was nine when Moving Out was always on the radio, and I think it is the first rock song that I was ever aware of. In 1980, I got into the song You May Be Right from, of all things, a cover by Alvin and the Chipmunks on the album Chipmunk Punk. This was not covered on the episode where you did other artists covering Billy Joel. You should check it out. Seen Billy 12 times, I think. 1986 in Nassau, 1989 in London, 1994 and 1995, along with Elton in Houston. Also, Millennium Show, Two of the Twelve Gardens, The Second Last Play at Shea, and Three Residencies. My craziest Billy Joel story is somewhere around 1998. My father had a connection when, with one of the caterers, or maybe Teamsters, at Nassau Coliseum. You know how they say he saves the front rows to move fans from nosebleed seats? Well, that is only partly true, at least in my case. The caterer guy met me and my sister outside the Coliseum and had a stack of all the tickets from the first rows and gave us two. We were in the third row, and after some songs, we were told we could rush the stage. So I was the guy with my elbow on the stage. Then, during It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, Billy started to slap hands with people in the crowd. When he got to me, I was so nervous that I grabbed his hand a little too tight, and for a bit longer than I was supposed to, and I could see Billy with a bit of a panicked look. He pulled his hands away, fortunately, and, all, and it all worked out. I will never forget that, and maybe he won't either. I've been to a bunch of shows since then, and I feel... Like I can sit as far back as I want, knowing that there was a time I was the guy with his elbow on the stage, nearly taking Billy Joel's hand off like an idiot. I have two questions that maybe you have already addressed or are planning to. The first is something I've always wondered, as crazy it may be, but I know that I love listening to the way Billy plays piano, but I've heard him say that he does not have great technique and his left hand is mostly octaves. I would love to hear an expert go through Billy's most impressive piano feats and explain what it is that makes his playing so enjoyable, even if he isn't maybe a technical virtuoso. Another question I have is about what kinds of things does he do in terms of music theory that makes his chord progression so pleasing? I know that music theory isn't your specialty, but maybe an expert can come on and explain to the audience by explaining to you what it is that makes some of his classics so great to listen to over and over. Keep up the great work. I look forward to catching up. That's a, This is a meaty one. This is a, this is a seven yeah. course meal. I love it. Well, awesome. Thanks, Gary. Uh, and yeah, what a great cross-section of shows he's seen over the years. Some pretty big ones. That's really awesome that he's got to experience that. And I'm I'm just picturing him panicking as he realizes <laughs> he's holding on to Billy's hand a little too much. <laughs> well, fortunately, it sounds like he released just before uh, uh, someone ran over and 
forced it. <laughs> yeah, right. That's great. I, I love I love how clear eyed he is about it. like, yep, yep, I screwed that one up. <laughs> yeah, it's gotta happen, man. You know, Billy high fives how many people, but you only high five him once. You're like, oh, what's protocol here? You know, like Yeah, I got to do that at a Metallica show too, and it was it was exciting, but Ner- totally nerve-wracking like I yeah don't screw this up i did it with uh, acdc i did it with angus young but i was so drunk that like it just worked out probably saw me was like i know exactly what to do with this idiot yeah <laughs> we got to find this uh chipmunk punk now i didn't know about yeah, that one. you know i think i've heard that one before i know they've done at least three chipmunk versions of billy joel songs there's that one and there was the longest time and uptown girl well longest time that's a gimme they just got to speed up the tape a little <laughs> right yeah oh and i appreciate uh, that we're the only podcast you listen to right now if you're like me you don't listen to a lot so it is an honor when when somebody keys into yours and is like i'm listening to this for a while so thank you very much anytime someone intentionally carves out some time to listen to the work we do is uh certainly means a lot thank you for that that's that's really cool that you've gravitated to what we're doing it makes me feel a lot better too about how much time we spend really sculpting every yes. episode when you could be like man we can just let some of this slide and it's like no we, we, we keep it tight am i over analyzing that dirty cut between these two words yeah yes i am <laughs> but yes it's worth it <laughs> yeah right yeah i'm keying into also uh his comment about you know billy's piano playing yeah i think part of what makes him special is that he's not virtuoso you know he's got a great ear and so a lot of his choices are gut just based on how good he really is he's not trained like a classical pianist yeah yes he did take lessons when he was a kid but you know he comes from the school of rock and roll which is more about feel and more about heart and less about getting the notes exactly right all the time i like that about him i like that it's not pristine and you're going to get different versions and different approaches and different plans every night and mm-hmm. to me that's what makes his playing special you know i think this is something we floated a long time ago at least between the two of us of having somebody come on and, and break down some of these songs and i think this is going to be a great impetus for us to to get somebody on the line to really to really go through them can, i can speak a little to it but you know i can't really get inside it and i think having someone that can answer our questions as we go would really unlock a lot as drummers i think we're just right at the precipice of like knowing just enough to get through to make the conversation good but not so much that we're going to gloss over stuff but not too little that like we're just going to be like and what's a root note you know he has he plays very percussively he has a good sense of polyrhythm in the way he plays i think maybe it does boil down to playing chords with more notes than usual and not following blues progressions which means you're going to get more inventiveness. And I think that fuses with a sense of melody that the chord progressions themselves resolve in very sonorous and pleasing ways. Yeah. And in a way too, where these complicated chord choices don't sound complicated to the ear, they make sense and they work. These choices are way deeper than they seem to be on the surface, if that makes sense. But the way he writes is he rolls them off because he hears them like that. That's what makes it interesting. It's not like he's mm-hmm. sitting down trying to do it. Like a lot of jazz guys, I think now, and it's not a knock, but it's because it's the nature of the music is they look for ways to jazzify it. They look for ways to reharmonize and, and give themselves a challenge. And this is just going for it. From what I've heard too, that what a great analog to it is actually Stevie Wonder. You know, on his classic mm-hmm. albums, he's got that same, he's got a way of like switching, changing keys at weird times, seamlessly using extended chords not being stuck on on blues progressions and and rock idioms and things like that so listening to like a run of stevie's classic albums against like probably the run of billy's classic uh 70s albums would be a good comparison you know and then and then you get too far on the spectrum so to speak and then you get into steely dan where you really hear like oh man that there is a jazz chord sir it's good for contrast right there you hear the complexity in the steely dan record for sure Yep, that's how we roll back into the mailbag. (laughs) That's a great way to dip back in, that's for sure. This next one is from Jeff Garner, and he writes, Hi, Michael and Jack. Thank you both for your podcast. I've only discovered them over the last few months, and as a longtime Billy Joel fan, it's great to hear you both share memories and stories. It's also very noticeable to hear your passion and dedication, which blast through the speakers of your episodes. I was introduced to Billy's music while in my first year of high school in suburban Sydney, Australia. At 12 years of age of music class, we studied the song Piano Man. I remember that week on television, a concert of Billy's from London on the Innocent Man Tour was televised, and my father suggested I watch it, just in case Piano Man was played. Of course it would be, and from that moment on, I became a huge fan. Later that year, I was gifted an Innocent Man on cassette, and as time passed through my teenage years, 
I purchased Billy's back catalog and was eager to get his new albums when they were released. Over the years, I was fortunate to see Billy perform, and the very first concert of any artist I went to was Billy on the Bridge Tour in 1987. My memory of guitarist David Brown playing Big Man on Mulberry Street, walking into the crowd right up to me, still is one of my highlights. This concert, that concert is one I've never forgotten and still my favorite. I'm about to turn 51 years of age and live in Canberra, Australia's capital city. I often throw on a classic album of Billy's to bring back memories. My favorite, if I had to choose, still would be An Innocent Man. I hope you both still get to share your passion with your podcasts. I enjoy listening, and I'm sure many others like me do. Thank you. Regards, Jeff. Yeah, someone else that um, that just found the podcast relatively recently and, yeah. and is going through them all. I like that the... Your passion and dedication blast through the speakers on your episodes. Can we can we make a pull quote of that and put it on the on the website? I think that's that's yeah, so well I, said. Thank you I so like much. It. Yeah, you know, and his story too. It's not too dissimilar from ours, where we you know we come online with a certain album, and that's like often remains a favorite because sentimentality reasons. That's the one we gravitate towards. Then we discover there's this back catalog that we never knew existed. And so slowly discovering these old albums. Yeah, right. the excitement is palpable. And I think a lot of us can identify with that. And, you know, I guess he saw the concert that we reviewed. Was that last year or, or very? Yeah, it was. Well, obviously it was last year, but I guess early 2022, right? The, the Wembley. That would have been the one on, on right. television. That was the one on television. That's the same right. show. Yep. Very first concert of any artist. I think that was the same for me. I saw the Temptations in a nightclub, but Billy was my first arena, you know, show. Now so yeah, I'll see him. Same here. You know. Yep. Yeah. The memory of David Brown playing and walking to, to the crowd. That's also two in a row with uh, Close Encounters. He mentions being gifted an innocent man on cassette. It just reminded me, I was given the cassette of it as a gift, you know, out of Christmas in the 80s from a relative. And you mm -hmm. know how they used to come in these big plastic security cases? Yeah. You know, so they could fit in the browser, but it also like helped deter people stealing them. Right. Well, apparently the record store didn't take it off. I simply remember me and my dad like mangling the cassette trying to get it out of this security thing. That's awful optimistic because I was going to say, apparently you're... Uh your friend's got some sticky fingers. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was it was my aunt and uncle. I think you gave that one to me. My uh, yeah, aunt and uncle's got sticky. Hey, man, no, no it's Chuck. <laughs> hey, you never know. Oh, isn't that weird? They they forgot to take the security tag off. Oh, uh, weird again. <laughs> yeah, same thing with your dress and your sports coat. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, kid, of course. But that's awesome. I love hearing these stories about the. Oh, this is the album that got me, and this is this is how I. And it's always somebody stumbled into them. You know, it's, it's always how it goes. Like, all right, yeah, I'll watch this concert. Oh, crap. This is good stuff. Yeah. You know, seems to be how it happens. I feel like you and I kind of like grew into it in, in a little more maybe, but a lot of people just seem to stumble. I think because we were young, you know, so yeah. it was like, it, it just caught us quickly and it would just never let go. Jeff was 12. Gary was nine. I mean, nine is a close to, you stumble, you know, he heard that, that song saturated on the radio and just happened to study Piano Man, and his dad was like, yeah, check this out. It's always interesting to see how, how people come online and, wh and what sticks out to them. Of all the songs to choose to discuss it in music class, Piano Man is just an interesting choice. Yeah, especially when you're 12. Like, How, how do you explain making love to his tonic and gin? <laughs> right. Well, and even if you're going to go with a Billy Joel song, I, I like Piano Man, great song, yeah. but there's songs with a little more meat in the arrangements and the music. Than yeah. you know, Piano Man, which is essentially the verse and the chorus are the same thing. There are more. There are a couple of interesting things, like the the structure isn't as linear or, the, or or isn't as straightforward as you'd think, and does have some elements that come in and out, which is fun. And, you know, also dropping you know Angry Young Man or maybe Until the Night or or especially Zanzibar yeah. and trying to go through what's going on there is going to be oh that yeah trickier. that's true. it's a good starting point you know because you can hear things come in and out and it's a story too so that makes it a little easier. Yeah. Next one is a Facebook message from Mark Child. He writes, Hi guys, hope all's well. I have just been enjoying the latest podcast, the year 1989 and the Stormfront album. When I was 28 years old, I went to two of the concerts in the UK, one at London Wembley Arena and the other at the NEC in Birmingham, UK. I love them both. My two favorite tracks off this album are State of Grace and When in Rome. Of course, I love the rest of the album. Keep up the good work, guys. That is a head turner. Of a, of a contrast yeah. there because, and it, we've been seeing this especially in the Discord server where State of Grace gets a decent amount of love. It's certainly one of my favorite yeah. album tracks, but uh, there's there's a lot of um, disparagement of when in Rome 
which is yeah. not uncommon in the community, but like it, I think a couple of people have really centered around it and beat, beat up on it a little. Uh, <laughs> so it's fun to hear from someone that, that really digs that song, you know, just for contrast. I'm curious when made Mark gravitate towards those two over everything else on that record. Well, I think State of Grace is an understated banger. And I, yeah. I get when in Rome, I don't know. I think it just doesn't quite do for me, but sometimes I'm like, I got it. It really achieves what it sets out to do. It just didn't have high aspirations. I think it's satisfying when you hear a, a song hit the market was going for, even if it wasn't an amazing mark, as opposed to one that like yeah. almost doesn't make it or something, or has like an element that's off. Yeah. And you know, there's songs that serve the purpose of fitting somewhere on an album, but they're not like a single material for me. Cause like state of grace and, and so it goes, they're kind of heavy lyrically. So it's just this breezy thing that just drops in and, and breaks that up and, and, Really sets up the nice, gentle ending of the album. Thanks, Mark, for that one. This next one's from our friend Eric Fallon, and he's writing in about the 1989 episode as well. He says, awesome podcast once again. Really love the show you guys do. I still remember the Stormfront album release day. I was a senior in high school on a class trip in New York City to the Museum of Broadcast Television. I escaped from the class for a bit when I realized Tower Records was around the corner and bought the CD. I have my dad's disc man and listen to it the whole way home on the bus. Love it. <laughs> so wait a minute. How big was this disc man in 1989? Cause I'm picturing the, dis- the, the portable music player equivalent of the Zach Morris cell phone. Oh, right. Yeah. They were kind of boxy back then originally, if I'm not mistaken, my first disc man. Yeah. was pretty kind of boxy and square and like, it did not have that skip protection. Like, than the later ones did. So you right. had to be pretty careful with those. And they churn through batteries, my goodness. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, especially back then. Well, yeah, Eric, send us a picture of that disc man if you have one. I'm just really curious. Or at least the model will look it up. Uh, you know, how small was his class that he could s- sneak away and go to the record store for 10 minutes and buy this album? How crappy was the teacher that they didn't realize? <laughs> right? <laughs> Where were the chaperones? What the heck's going Damn on? Damn it, felon, get back here. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we have a letter from someone I'm going to guess is of Nordic descent because I have no idea how to say this name. I guess it's a Dutch name, it looks like, as I'm looking it up. This Facebook message comes from Maisha Regensburg, and she writes, really enjoyed this podcast. Definitely had to give it a listen because We Didn't Start the Fire Hitting the Airwaves was pretty much the start for me becoming a Billy Joel fan. It wasn't used to teach in school, but we did have a group assignment to write and record a song about the environment, so my classmates and I decided to rewrite the lyrics to talk about pollution. It wasn't until 90 that I succumbed and got Stormfront on cassette. I remember it was summer and I was at the South Street Seaport, wow, with my parents and a WPLJ street team outside a music store, Sam Goody probably, was giving out these sticky patches with Billy on them promoting the Stormfront tour. I can't recall for sure if they were hyping the Yankee Stadium shows or Giant Stadium, but I remember feeling pretty left out that I was only like 12 and my parents surely weren't going to take me to the Bronx or New Jersey. So I did the next best thing and asked them to buy me his album. By the way, I had two patches, one of which I stuck on my desk, the other I saved with other Billy Joel clippings, which have now been lost to time. I was really excited until that last sentence. I was going to ask Masha to, to send us a photo of those those patches. But I can relate uh, having some of your memorabilia just kind of disappear over the years, and it's kind of heartbreaking in a way, but you know, you still have the memories of, of that experience and those, so that's... That's certainly something that you can always hold on to. I can certainly empathize with you being at that age and, you know, just begging your parents to try to take you to a concert and they're having none of it. I love the detail on this. I I remember vaguely South Street Seaport. A few times I was like really in Manhattan with my parents, uh, the WPLJ street team. So funny now to think of like the street team hyping up a Billy show, you know, that when he was still in that sort of sphere. Where they're going to grab people walking into a music store. So, Jack, let me ask you, what is South Street Seaport? Yeah, it's kind of a neighborhood, you know, sort of a destination. It's got restaurants, it's got shops, things like that. So, you yeah. go down to South Street Seaport. Oh, cool. Just something in Philly, we have South Street. So, I'm so used to hearing that when I hear South Street Seaport. It just uh, it stirs yeah. up that that memory for me. And I guess Maisha was also one of the first people to rewrite We Didn't Start the Fire, which is a hobby that's been rekindled by many during the pandemic. And not always to great effect. (laughs) I err on the side of leaving it alone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we got three more quick Facebook comments as well. And these are in response to the Behind the Nylon Curtain episode with Brad Lee and Larry Frank. 
which was a lot of fun to put together. The first one's from Drew Richardson and his comment, he writes, I haven't been commenting much lately because I've been so far behind. We can relate. (laughs) (laughs) But this interview about the production on the nylon curtain was outstanding. You guys have gotten really good at podcast production as well, incorporating the music, letting us hear the things that you guys are talking about. I think that's so important and something that you weren't doing when the podcast began. That's a big improvement today. Thank you guys and keep up the great work. And the next comment on this uh, thread for the Behind the Nylon Curtain is Gina Marzanel. She writes, I love this episode. I'll admit that some of it was over my head, but I still get a lot out of it. As a person who knows a small amount about the recording and editing process, this episode was still very accessible. I love the track by track notes, the stories, and learning the process behind Songs in the Attic. And the last one here is from Stephen Thomas Howard, and he writes... An absolute fantastic episode. Being a recording engineer, it made it all that much more great. The studio stories are just treasures, especially the one in three crowd clapping in Los Angelinos. So funny. Well done, guys. Great. I think that's an excellent cross-section of comments for that episode. And that episode was certainly one of my high, certainly a highlight for me recently. And I love to hear someone say, you know, some of it was over my head, but I still got a lot out of it. I think that's what makes those great. You're not slowing down for people that you know don't have any experience, but you're able to you're able to ride that line where you're getting through the conversation, but people are picking up enough. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of where we like to sit in general to where no matter where you are as a fan, like what your uh, level of uh, Billy fandom is or your technical knowledge or your knowledge of his career or any of that stuff is, you can find something to grab onto and identify with. This is a great illustration on being able to do that. So uh feels like we're on the right track with that. So I appreciate all three of these. Thanks for the compliments on our, on our own production as well. You know, that's all Michael finding the spots to put those songs in. And that speaks a lot to our, our good division of labor here, because if yes. I had to think about, I'm sure this would be the same for you. If I had to think about both parts of that, it wouldn't work, but being able to hand it off to you, knowing that like, you know, like I'll hear stuff and I'm like, all right, this is a pretty good transition. I'm, I'm sure Michael will hear where to make a, make a switch with the music. That'll, that'll smooth this out. And that I'm able yeah. to do it very quickly that way. Hopefully it's not like uh and you're like, what the F did he just switch over there for? I guess I'm doing the transition <laughs> here. Thanks a lot. You jerk. But sometimes that's the way it's got to go. You know, we'll snip out a certain section and there's no super clean way to kind of bridge between topics but most of the time when when i'm listening to it i I get where you're going with it and yeah our division of labor uh, i think helps both of us keep our sanity because it is a lot of work and we both spend a lot of time on our respective chores and our respective tasks when it comes to putting these episodes together you've got a great knack for uh shaping the story and i love being able to add the color we did a little bit of music here and there throughout we never really played full songs unless it was our radio episodes or playlist mm-hmm. episodes. Once we've gotten to know the folks at Sony and some more of the folks at Billy's camp and just to see, you know, how much they appreciate what we're doing. And they know that we're treating his catalog with respect and we're not just putting things out there for people to just download and keep. And, you know, it's right. every note and every second of Billy Joel audio we put up there serves a purpose. And I, I think everyone's identified with that and everyone's been super supportive. So um, we've been, you know, able to incorporate a little bit more as the time goes. And our conversations are great. And I always enjoy just those, but being able to accentuate them with, you know, a demo track that's been floating out there or Mm. case of our turnstiles episodes where we talked about the three different saxophone solos. Oh, that episode comes out next. (laughs) Right. Like I said, we're, we're, we're breaking the laws of physics on this one. We're gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Coming up, breaking news two weeks from now, uh, from this episode coming out, we're doing an episode on the turnstiles album. And in it, we talk about three different sax solos being released for New York State of Mind. All right, let's close up the mailbag here and jump ahead two weeks, but possibly behind a week. I'm not sure if I've lost track. And there is one other piece of Billy Joel news, and we're hoping to dedicate an episode to it very quickly. And that is a standalone release from the vinyl box set, Volume 1. We know a lot of people, once Volume 1 came out, were asking, you know, are these going to get released individually? You know, it's like, oh, I already have all the other albums, but I really want Great American Music Hall. Well, now you are in luck. February 16th, they announced that live at the Great American Music Hall, 
1975 to be released for Record Store Day. And so Record Store Day this year is on April 22nd. And it's where independent record stores around the country in the US and I think Europe does it too, some other countries, where they get together to celebrate the independent music stores. To go along with it, they release several limited edition releases by several artists. Probably one at the top of my list is the Verve Pipe Villains on vinyl. There's also Van Halen Live right here, right now, Our Lady Peace, Pearl Jam, and a host of others. But among them is the Great American Music Hall release. This features the uh, the famed show that was uh, recorded in uh, uh, the spring of 1975. I believe it was June on the Street Life Serenade tour, and it's uh, you know Doug's first tour with Billy. So it's a, a nice cross section of the old and the classic band. So this limited edition version, which again is going to be available record store day at independent record stores, April 22nd. It is uh, released on opaque gray vinyl. And on Billy's website, you'll see, and even on our socials, you'll see a mock-up of it. The gray fairly closely matches the outer border of the album artwork. Got a nice little hype sticker on it as well. And we'll go into some more details on that coming up. And this release is limited to 6,700 copies worldwide. So that may sound like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, it's really not. And titles like this often go pretty quick. So I would, uh, Check with your record store to see if they're going to be having it in stock and see if they were able to order it. There's no holds, no special orders. So it's kind of a first come, first serve kind of situation. So your best bet is going to be to get up early on the 22nd and uh, get in line and see if you can get yourself a copy. Uh, That's my plan on record store day. And the next part of this episode is going to be our experiences at the kickoff of the Stevie Nicks Billy Joel tour. What you're about to hear was recorded right after... (laughs) The Billy Joel Stevie Nicks show just a couple of days ago on March 10th at SoFi Stadium uh, in Inglewood, uh, which is just outside Los Angeles. And let's see what we had to say about that. Two icons, one night, Billy Joel, Stevie Nicks. Friday, March 10th, SoFi Stadium. Tickets on sale now at Ticketmaster.com. Together in Los Angeles for the first time ever. Don't miss Billy Joel and Stevie Nicks. Uh, here we are just after one in the morning doing what is probably the most boring recording going on in a Motel 6 at this time of night. We wanted to get this done while it was fresh in our minds and it couldn't be any fresher. We just got back walking from SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California, where we had the pleasure to see an amazing show, Billy Joel and Stevie Nicks kicking off their tour together. And what a fun night it was. What a wet, soggy night. Leave it to me to have my first experience in California in the middle of torrential downpours. When they made SoFi Stadium, they did not take into account this kind of weather because that that concrete was slick inside. Yeah, it was a little dicey at times, and this stadium is pretty steep. So we were kind of gripping those handrails for dear life, and uh, Ubers were scarce. Traffic was crazy, so we walked about two and a half miles home in the rain back to the hotel. Oh, I forgot to mention, we have to be at the airport in three hours. That all aside, yeah, it was definitely worth it. Uh, We had a lot of questions, as did many people, about how Stevie Nicks and Billy Joel were going to pair up together. And the answer is, uh, all things considered, pretty well. You know, on a previous episode, we kind of talked about how they're sort of similar in their trajectories. They had that uh, 70s, you know, rise to fame. And then another big peak in the 80s for both of them. And then they really haven't put that much out uh, since the 90s, Stevie Nicks having put out more. But, you know, it's a little bit of an exercise in contrast. Stevie Nicks has a very, a much smaller band, a very different show. I found Stevie Nicks both unassuming and very, very charismatic. She's very casual on stage. But like her, her overall persona, even in a place that was that's five levels high, and uh, 70,000 people, you, you could really feel that presence, even though I think we were uh, about eight, eight rows from the very edge of SoFi Stadium, from the very tippy top. 
That is one spot where both Stevie and Billy really overlap. They are both such charismatic figures that, you know, they can connect with an audience as intimate as 300 or 80,000 in this case. I have seen Fleetwood Mac once before about five years ago. I'd never seen Stevie solo and she was absolutely charming on stage. It felt very sweet and very innocent in a way. Some very moving tributes along the way to her dear friend Tom Petty and the late Christine McVie. It was a pretty emotional set, and, you know, I didn't know how the pairing was going to go, but it worked so well. Yeah, so here be the spoilers. If you, if you want to be surprised, if you have tickets on this tour and you don't know what's going to come, this is your, this is your opportunity to, uh, to, to, to hop off this episode for now. But yeah, so there was overlap between the two artists. Not to pat myself on the back, because this one was a gimme, but early on in the set, she performed Stop Dragging My Heart Around, and Billy came out and sang Tom Petty's parts. Her walk-on music was Running Down a Dream by Tom Petty, and she also covered Free Falling uh, in her set. She also did uh, For What It's Worth by Stephen Stills and, and drew parallels to today, which was unexpected and done very well. I didn't realize her and Tom Petty, I guess, were that close because, uh, you know, Tom made uh, essentially three appearances in her set, and she, you know, she, she kind of talked about working with him, things like that. You know, her last song of the night was Landslide, which I did not think was going to go last, just because it's a softer song, but it was um, tacitly dedicated to Christine McVie, and she got a little emotional at the end, teared up, you know, at the very end of the song, and lights went down, when it came back up, she was clearly, you know, crying a little and feeling it, and then, you know, joined the band for the, for the bow, and, uh, and they exited the stage. Edge of 17 killed it. Goldust Woman was, I think that was the high point. Edge of 17 was a lot of fun and really good, but Goldust Woman kind of stole the, stole the show. Yeah, those are two highlights for me as well. Again, like you mentioned, very surprising to end with Landslide. And, you know, this, I, I believe, was her first live performance since Christine passed away. So that emotional connection was running throughout the song and the performance. And, you know, it's clear how much... Christine meant to Stevie, and so that was a fitting tribute to a dear friend. And it, it was a real treat to see Billy uh, do a you know, Tom Petty song. I forget who it was. Somebody mentioned it on our Discord just tonight that, you know, Billy has never so much as mentioned Tom Petty throughout his career that we can track. And to see him come up and do the Tom Petty parts and stop dragging my heart around, it was the perfect song choice for him. He was comfortable on stage. Uh, he had the mic on a mic stand. So he was moving around a bit. It was just a good register for him. He was really having a good time. Billy's the kind of guy who loves doing cover songs. So to get him uh, up on stage early in the show doing that was great. And it's also worth noting, too, that there was a, a wardrobe change. We're looking back to, you know, the Rome 2006 era where Billy's wearing the black t-shirt, the sport coat, and he's back in jeans. So for all of you tracking what Billy's wearing on stage, things were a little different. It was a little more casual. And, you know, as a huge fan of Billy's live performances into the 70s and 80s, where Billy was wearing the sport coat and the jeans, I love seeing him a little more comfortable and a little more loose looking on stage and a little less recitally. Yeah, and then a little bit of um, housekeeping and, and geeking out was that Billy walked on unannounced at the beginning of Stop Dragging My Heart Around. And it was one of those things where uh, I guess the people on the floor figured it out first because the, the applause sort of rippled back because he wasn't on the camera yet until everybody figured it out.
funny thing, we noticed that Stevie Nicks had a mic pack on the front of her skirt. Wondering if that's what it was, and yeah, every once in a while you would catch her like sort of adjusting her own volume for the in-ears, which is just a kind of funny thing we pick up on. And both performers talked about how cold it was. I don't think anybody was expecting it to be that like chilly and nasty because SoFi Stadium is, is essentially outdoors, although it doesn't feel like that once you get in. We got some mist where we were, but apparently it was chilly on stage too. Um, I think Stevie like switched from like one shawl to a heavier one and Billy later on had like a scarf on his piano for when he finally needed it. You know, we didn't expect it either and unfortunately I brought some of the Pacific Northwest rain with us to LA uh, yesterday. Uh, Thursday was absolutely beautiful. Jack and I actually had the opportunity to rent a car and tool around town for the day, checking out the sites. Jack's first time down in the area so we had a beautiful day Thursday to do that but it's been a deluge all day on Friday and we finally get to the venue and it's just coming down in buckets. This is kind of an interesting stadium setup, but it's kind of like a canopied ceiling in a way where the end zone ends of the stadium are open far away from the field and the top, I believe, vents so you can get a lot of fresh air in throughout. So it's somewhat open, but somewhat closed. And just between all of the rain and the um, breeze blowing around, it was a constant state of mist throughout the entire night. And so there was definitely a chill on our bones. And that was even before the walk home. But like we said, it was a good show. So after Stevie, we had about a half hour break. Uh, Billy comes on. The natural is the walk on music once again. Starts off with My Life. Does the Beethoven piece at the beginning. Kicks it right off. Kicks right into moving out. And now for the third song, I want to make this point. I'm only 40-something, 42, I think. I felt so old at this concert, but I felt so old in the best way possible because the amount of young people, teenagers and kids in their 20s, going batshit for this music was, was really great to see to the point where like, I, was, I felt like I had passed the torch. I could just sit there like an old man and just tap my foot and, and enjoy it because the kids in front of us were dancing and then so Vienna played and this couple was hugging and like holding each other the whole time and they were what? They couldn't have been more than 22. Oh yeah, early mid-20s I would say. You really saw the younger audience resonating with this one. This has been the song that has resonated with the teens and 20-somethings, you know, who are coming of age and just trying to deal with life. And so to see that reaction in real time throughout Vienna was uh, something to see and he goes right out of it into another now young person song in the form of Zanzibar, which obviously we all talked about was a, uh, a TikTok trend a couple of years back. Yeah, and once again, of course, Carl Fisher is the is the feature on this one. And that brings us to An Innocent Man. And uh, Billy, by the way, is in great voice all night. Really, really is. I think one of the things about seeing him at the beginning of the tour is that he's well-rested and he's really taken a crack at everything. He's, he sounds very natural. There's sort of a lot more of his old voice, his youthful voice coming through again. Although he did seem to have some trouble walking around toward the end of it. I'm going to say it was the weather that was doing it to him because he, he seemed to be okay during uh, Stevie's set but, but was having a little trouble walking after that. But he goes into An Innocent Man and just talks about, you know, the, how, uh, how we're on the edge here. It's a question of whether or not he's going to hit the high notes and he definitely hit them. I think he whiffed a little on maybe one toward the end but not only did he hit them, they sounded good too. He sounded in control of it. He didn't sound like he was pushing at all to get there. You know, Billy made the joke that a lot of the songs on An Innocent Man he wrote in his 30s when it was already at the top end of his range at the time, you know, not thinking that he was still going to have to be singing this song 40 years later. It was clear prior to this that Billy was in good vocal form, but the fact that he continues to go for these high notes in full voice and just really sounded good. I mean, it was really hearkening back to the album version because really, once that song started getting playing live, he was not singing the chorus hook early on. Uh, so it was really a treat to see him still doing this and really, really sounding strong. Yeah, next uh, was Don't Ask Me Why, and uh, it sounds like they got some better hand clap samples going now. But they were at least better blended, so that was fun. Just the Way You Are, Allentown. Then we get to the duet, and this was unexpected. He brought out Stevie Nicks for And So It Goes, and he introduces it by saying, this is one off Stormfront, we don't do it that often. My first guess was Shameless. I was wrong. <laughs> I'm going to say I have faith in this. It it did not land perfectly this time. Um, Stevie Nicks has a very distinct voice. 
And, you know, on the way home, we were talking about it. And I don't, I can't think of any times where she really did like harmo, uh, like lead harmonies on something like, you know, Simon and Garfunkel style kind of thing. Some Fleetwood Mac or Stevie Nicks fans will probably come up with something. I guess that's just 17, but like, I, I have a feeling that was doubled or something, you know, like she doesn't have a voice that blends, especially now. And, you know, there were times when they were a little off and, you know, you can hear that her phrasing was a little different from Billy's, but by the end, they got it. By the end, I think they dialed it in. I would love to hear this a lot later in the tour, you know, once they once they've really gotten gotten the hang of it. But it was a nice one to do with with Stevie. I think that was a, that was a really great choice. I couldn't really imagine her coming out on anything else. The only other one that comes to mind is just too deep of a cut for anyone. It's a code of silence. I think that would be an interesting choice, but he's never ever played it live, and I don't think he would use this tour as an excuse to pull it out. So the way this song went is. Essentially, Stevie was harmonizing with Billy out of the gate from verse one. And uh, during our walk back to the hotel, we we kind of pondered, you know, how it could work a little more. And one of our thoughts was, you know, if, if maybe instead of harmonizing the whole way through, you have Billy take the first verse solo, then you have Stevie take verse two solo, and then the two of them are coming in together doing a harmony. But like you said, you know, it, it finally did kind of get there towards the end. And, you know, this is the first time they've done it. You know, I know, you know, Billy especially is not an over-rehearser, so they probably ran it once. Um, so I, I think it'll certainly get there. I'm looking forward to listening to more throughout the tour and see how it tightens up as we go. Uh, this next song is one I do too often. I'm going to get some help on this next song. This is from an album called Stormfront. This is a song called And So It Goes. Please welcome Stevie next album. say goodbye to Hollywood apropos for the location uh, I got sometimes a fantasy that was fun I don't think I've seen him do that one before I haven't seen him that often so I was happy I got that one only the good die young and then river dreams with uh, river deep mountain high 
And then we also got Nesim Dora. Michael thought if we got the song in the middle of River of Dreams, I guess we wouldn't get Nesim Dora also. But we did, and it was sort of back-to-back. As great as Highway to Hell was as the vocal break for Billy, you know, they've really become known in recent years for doing this song. And Mike Del Judas, what a voice. And he had the crowd on their feet and just really roaring by the end of the song. You know, it's worth noting that everyone seemed like they were in just really good spirits tonight. They were all having a good time, Billy especially. When the mood is light, the mood is good. That often makes for a great show, and it was visible here tonight. Yeah, for sure. So we get into scenes from an Italian restaurant and piano, man. Now, it was funny because we had some young people next to us, and obviously they, you know, they were all about Vienna and Zanzibar, and they were into a lot of stuff. And the one girl goes, oh, this song is like seven, eight minutes long. Like, not really like uh, disparaging it, but like pointing out to her, just giving her friend the heads up of like, I'm sorry, this song? Like, <laughs> it's yeah. funny to hear a scene from an Italian restaurant uh, be referred to as, quote, this song at a Billy Joel concert. But no real surprises here. Uh, you know, that and Piano Man, obviously, you know, it's it's, it's great to be back in a, in a room that big with everybody singing uh, Piano Man together, uh, even if we all have our phones out instead of lighters anymore. And that brings us to what's been uh, his steady encore, which was, again, really great to be in the room for. Yeah, coming out with We Didn't Start the Fire to kick it off. And it was a really great version of the song. It had a little more pep than I remember it having in recent years. Uh, The band just had a really good driving feel. And he's always played the song in the original key, but something about it just felt closer to the 1990 performances to me. Um, The band just sounded really great. And... uh, you know, Billy was up front with a guitar in hand, Crystal kicking butt on those backing vocals and doing, I almost thought I heard something a little different toward the end. She was doing a little something different vocally. I couldn't quite pick it up, but I, I did notice something new. Yeah, from there it's um, Uptown Girl, Still Rock Road to Me, Big Shot, and You May Be Right. And, you know, again, this is this is where I really noticed, man, those young people were up and at it. And they were dancing, and they were, it wasn't ironic either. It was, they were genuinely into everything going on. I mean, you know, I've always said that, you know, Billy stacks these shows well, so the end is always a party. And, you know, that's definitely a five-song party block at the end, one right after the other. It becomes really immersive by the end, you know, you really, it's that moment where, like, you know, you look around and finally everybody becomes one big amorphous thing, you know, of like 70,000 people. That's that's really the best part of being at a show like this. I mean, you know, there's some drawback to the fact that I think we were in a different zip code from the band. You know, I mean, it was, it was like almost no reason at all to look at the stage right. because we were like five sections up, not even like the usual three. So, you know, you do lose some intimacy there. Um but you gain it back, you know, when, when someone like Billy Joel can come out and, and, and do five kick-ass songs in a row like that and, and have everybody up and at them. And, you know, it's so funny because 15, 20 years ago, you know, We Didn't Start the Fire was a punchline, and now everybody's back into it. You know, kids that were, you know, not even a gleam in their parents' eye in 1989 are really all about it now, and that's it's just a lot of fun to see. That's one thing that I, I found myself paying attention to a lot tonight is uh, the audience around us. Uh, with being so far away, SoFi Stadium had really a really huge monitor screen set up that we were kind of above. That's how far up we were. So, you know, you had some good visuals there because the band and everyone looked quite small from where our vantage point was. But I found myself watching the different generations of people and how they were reacting. And I, I was seeing, you know, who was keying into what song. And these couple of girls over here, they're singing Don't Ask Me Why. And, you know, oh, this group knows Zanzibar. And it was really cool to see what different folks were responding to. Billy is a guy that has just crossed generations. I can't think of many other people, you know, especially who haven't put out, you know, new music in 30 years, you know, other than, you know, the Beatles <laughs> who broke up in 1970, um, who, you know, who still reach new generations and new uh, new people every year. We've got some uh, listeners on our Discord server, you know, some folks who's like, yeah, you know, I just got into Billy Joel in 2015. Heck, that's when I moved to Washington. <laughs> so, you know, to me, that seems like a blink ago. But, you know, there's people still discovering Billy Joel's music every day. And even though maybe some of the recording and mixing choices may be a little dated or, you know, you have some electronic drums and synths that may date some songs a little bit. But on the whole, Billy's music is timeless. And you have a song that's 50 years old that's still, you know, reaching a group of 20-year-old kids. I love it. You know, it's, you know, I think his music is safe for generations to come and we're going to continue to see his music really just be be evergreen that way. Yeah, this is really proof positive of that. And it's not just because we're, you know, 
because this is uh, something we do every every week. <laughs> I don't think I would have expected this 10, 15 years ago. I wouldn't have thought that this would have been happening. I thought this would have been an oldies act. I mean, and it's definitely a review. I mean, you know, it's, it's somewhat perfunctory at this point. You know, no real surprises in the set. And, you know, he looks winded by the end of it. But, you know, he's obviously still getting up there and doing it. So, you know, to know that it's actually having that sort of impact where it's a, it has attracted the next generation is really something. Um, you know, now the, the Stevie Nicks fans, you, there are a lot of hats with feathers in them. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of bustiers, a lot, a lot of uh, tower card looking people, you know, <laughs> that, that was a nice contrast as well. But man, everybody was into it. You know, even the Stevie Nicks people were definitely uh, fully engaged the whole time. Yeah, you know, I think there's certainly some differences in the core base of both artists here. But I tell you what, it, they blended really well together once the uh, house lights went down. And you had a few people kind of leave by the end by the time you maybe right was coming around. But overall, pretty much everyone around us was all in all night. For anyone who was questioning, you know, does this mix make sense? Does this pairing work? And, and I'll tell you, it does. It's the strength of the songs and the strength of the performers. Billy and Stevie, you know, between them have 100 years <laughs> in, in the music business, really, when you think about it. You know, about 50 years apiece. They're still doing it because that's how good they are and their songs are that strong and connect with so many people. What I would hope to see, and you see this a lot more in other countries in Europe and Australia and other places, where you see festivals and concert pairings that are a little more unorthodox. I remember seeing in 1985, Metallica was on a, on a festival bill with Phil Collins. And like in Australia in 2013, Billy played with Aerosmith and Van Halen on a weekend. <laughs> Granted, now all of those artists I mentioned are in the pop and rock world, but Billy's now not just sticking with, oh, we have to pair him with another piano player because people understand that. I would like to see more pairings that on paper many people may not make sense, but in the long run, you're in for a great night of music, and that's absolutely what we got here. Now it's time to hear from you. We know at least... Um Two listeners were there tonight, even though we didn't get a chance to hook up with them uh, because we weren't able to Oregon trail it over from one side of the stadium to the other in time. <laughs> that place is really freaking huge. But let us know. Uh, let us know your thoughts on the tour in general, especially if you were there. Uh, please chime in anywhere or any way you can. Let us know your impressions of that first show or any of the ones uh, after that. Hit us up, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com, or we're on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Anywhere you see our podcast, it allows you to do a review like Apple Podcasts. If you could leave uh, a five-star rating and a positive review, that goes a long way in helping us reach more people. And you guys are the driving force behind us growing. We're going to continue to do this every other week like we've been doing for the last three plus years now. And so you guys are a huge part of that. And uh, yeah, I also want to give a big shout out to our friend Jessica, who we got to meet up with tonight. And uh, yeah, sorry, Scott and Molly. It would have been great to see you guys too, but I think it would have taken us a couple of years to connect uh, inside that giant stadium. But by all accounts, everyone had a great time and we'll uh, definitely need to connect the next time we're in the same vicinity. And you know, how crazy is this? We are now almost three and a half years into the podcast, three years and change. And this is the very first podcast segment that Jack and I have been in the same room for. So we're actually sitting about three feet from each other as opposed to staring at a computer screen (laughs) and trying to work through delays and technical glitches. We're actually sitting in the same room having a conversation. That is a lot of fun. And the fact that we also got to do a Billy Joel show together finally. So we're hoping that, you know, if Billy keeps going, we can do some more of this in the future because this is definitely... Uh, a nice change of pace and a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. But now it's time for us to dry off and get about an hour and a half of sleep. So uh, we'll see. You. We'll see you all next time. We will see you soon, and we will see our Uber driver in about two hours. So <laughs> thanks, everyone. We'll see you soon.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.